When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. This is part two of our 2020 best of. I say best of. These are just episodes and conversations that has stuck in the memory of uh, me and the team. On this episode, we got profs, we got toffs, we got veterans. I hope all of you are taking advantage of our special offer on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. You go on there, use the code January, January, and you get our ridiculous Boxing Day January sale offer, which is a month for free. And then for the first three months, you only pay 20% of the subscription fee for those first three months. So basically, if you're looking ways to get you through lockdown, stay-at-home orders, wherever you are in the world, then I think this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for you. So head over there and do it. make sure you use the code January to get that unbelievably sweet deal. We've got a great documentary on there about the Haitian revolution at the moment, and obviously the, the Winter Truce documentary that I've been banging on about. Lots of you have listened to the podcast. Please go and, and check it out on there. I think it's probably the best piece of work we've produced so far, and that's partly because I'm not in it. There's probably a correlation there. So enjoy this episode when you'll be hearing from some of our past champions. And all I can say, everybody, is thank you for another year. Year five, going strong. Thank you to the millions of people download, listen to this podcast all over the world. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. You've made this guy very happy and very fulfilled. To get started, I thought we'd hear from Professor Fred Logoval. It's been a big year for US politics. And Fred has just written a magisterial biography of JFK. Heard of him? Thought so. And I thought we'd get started with a kind of discussion of why JFK still matters so much. I think the reason fundamentally why I think he's held in such high regard, and I think maybe we need this message today, frankly, given where we are in our politics, is that he believed, Kennedy believed in, in, in government, not that it would solve all of our problems, but that government had a vital role to play in creating a more equitable and just society. He believed in politics uh, and gave, I think, Americans a heightened belief that, that, that government could speak to their highest aspirations. There's something about that idealistic message that I think matters too. 
And he remains, as you say, the kind of platonic ideal form of a young, charismatic politician that seems to have seems to have endured. It's fascinating. But let's talk about the Kennedys. We talk days after one Kennedy descendant, not descendant, sign of the Kennedy family was just foiled in his attempt to snatch a, a Senate seat off a fellow Democrat uh, in Massachusetts. So who are the Kennedys? Who were the Kennedys when, when this young man was born? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the reasons I decided to write this book is that I find it an absolutely extraordinary story. It is one of the great American stories. I really think it is. We have Joe Kennedy, the, the patriarch, uh, and we have Rose Kennedy, and they have nine children, Irish Catholics. Uh, they become fabulously wealthy, uh, in part because of Joe's masterful insider trading, but they amass a huge fortune. And they become kind of American aristocracy, but nevertheless have to uh, have to be sort of uh, outsided in, if I can put it that way. What did you find out about his military career? That the, in in many ways, the the, the sort of foundation myth, if you like, of JFK is this this youthful, uh, topless, bare chested. Was it a patrol boat captain in in the South Pacific? Yeah, he was the he was a, a commander of a PT one hundred nine. Was his his number? It was nineteen forty three. Uh, in the South Pacific, uh, and I suggest in the book that, and I'm not the first, I think, to do this, it was a profoundly important experience for him, because I think now he was a leader of men uh, in combat. The PT boats were were pretty flimsy boats with mahogany shells. They were kind of floating infernos. Uh, if they were hit by Japanese um, aircraft, you were a goner, basically. And so... Uh, it's, he's in a dangerous situation. The boat, infamously, is rammed one night in in, in, 19, in August 1943, and they survive. All but two of them survive. And it, be, it, come, it becomes up to Kennedy to then try to figure out what to do to save his crew. Uh, and it's an it's a rather epic story in which they do uh, save themselves by swimming a long distance to an island and then swimming to another one, and then ultimately they're rescued. But the point is that for Kennedy, I think the experience matured him. It also had one other interesting result. I think forever after, Kennedy was leery of the military, uh, of the military as an instrument of policy. Uh, I think we see this later on in the Cuban Missile Crisis which will be in volume two, that he's reluctant to take the advice of his military chiefs. And I think some of that skepticism about the blunt instrument of military power, uh, I think it goes back to World War II. So it has a lasting effect in that regard too. And I always struck what's interesting about him in the patrol, but he's, you have more autonomy. He's a junior lieutenant, but he's actually in command of his own vessel, isn't he? I mean, had he gone as a junior lieutenant on an aircraft carrier, he's a tiny cog in a giant machine. He, there's a sense of that kind of, slight wiggle room, the autonomy that he enjoyed in the Pacific that must have shaped his leadership, his style? Oh, it's such a good point. You are you are exactly right. And I think that he talks about this in some of his letters. His, his closest friend, really right to the end in Dallas, was a fellow named Lem Billings. And he writes to Lem, uh, basically that. He says, you know, if I had been uh, on an aircraft car- carrier in a junior position, um, he, he writes this while it's going on. He says, I wouldn't be having this freedom I wouldn't be able to 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 because he lo- he he was a very experienced sailor, so he loved being out on the on the water, in command of his own vessel. He now got a chance to do this. Uh, I think his father's influence also made a difference here. It's interesting. His father was adamant that his sons 
not have to be in harm's way. But to Joe Kennedy's credit, when Jack said, no, I want a PT, I want to command a PT boat, Joe didn't stand in his way, and I think he had friends in the Navy. And though I can't prove this, I do think that Joe Sr. pulled some strings to get Jack that PT command, and then he was on his way to the Pacific. What do you think this extraordinary rise to a position of global hegemony, superpower, some people call it hyperpower, that the US experiences really over the course of this young man's life and now he's into politics. How do you think he does embody that? I think he, that's a really interesting question. I think he, he, I think he does embody it. I think he himself, as, as we've been saying, is youthful. Uh, he's full of energy. Uh, there is a, a kind of powerful marriage of idealism and pragmatism in the young John F. Kennedy. And I think you could say those things, maybe this is stretching it a bit too far, but you could say those things about this young nation, relatively speaking to the other great powers, that has seen this incredible rise, partly because of demographic and geographic reasons. I mean, it's, the, it's, where, it's where the United States is situated. It's the, the protection provided by the two oceans. It's this extraordinary burgeoning population with immigrants coming in by the, by the millions. Um, and then the resources of the country. That make it, I think, inevitable. I mean, even Tocqueville early in the 19th century saw the time when the United States was going to be dominant over a large part of the world. It happened, and it happens to be when John F. Kennedy, as you say, is, 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 is rising. But, um, yeah, I think he embodies, he embodies that in his, in his persona. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but he embodies that in a really interesting way. Well, it also, it also strikes me from the book that unlike a previous generation who flirted, arguably like his father, but certainly with the, the crop of politicians after the First World War who flirted again with isolationism, Kennedy, this, this was an America passionate about global engagement. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really good point that, that that debate, which is a really vociferous one that I go into in some detail, between the isolationists and the interventionists, both of those terms are a little bit problematic, but we use them. They were used at the time. I'm using them here. That was a that was a really bitter debate, uh, and I think we see in this younger generation that's coming up. So John F. Kennedy, as you say, as compared to his father, that shift. Uh, and it's not to say that there aren't isolationists after the war. In fact, there are. I talk a little bit about Robert Taft, for example, a, re a very prominent Republican who could well have become president. Taft and his supporters are, in many respects, retaining that attachment to an isolationist position, a kind of fortress America position, whereby the, by the nation will not be in a leader, leadership position in the world, but will mind its own business at home. Um, so one doesn't want to say that it, that that. 1945 ends this debate what uh, in any sense but nevertheless i think kennedy and many of those who come of political age who come to power in congress after the war uh embody this new position which says no the united states working in concert with other nations has to be in a leadership position we've got a new threat in the soviet union and we this is kennedy speaking but it could be others we have to um, take take a leading role, no question. Okay, so last question. 
Um, I'm, I, I have to ask anyone who writes biography because I don't. They fall in love with their subjects. You got to tell me the worst. What's the worst thing you found out about JFK? Uh, you know, I, I think he he could be heedless of people um, to some extent, and I say this, I think, in my preface. He and many of the other Kennedys um, tended to see people as interchangeable. Uh, it was family first with the Kennedys, and others would sometimes be shunted to the side. That said, he also had friends who were deeply loyal to him, and, 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 and he was loyal to them throughout his life. So I don't want to overstate the point. Um, uh, two other things. I'll say that he was cautious to a fault on some policy issues. On McCarthyism, um, the scourge of Joe McCarthy, uh, JFK, to my mind, and I talk about this, was much too, even if he had to, he had to be mindful of the fact that Massachusetts had a lot of McCarthy supporters, a lot of Irish Catholics in Massachusetts. Uh, nevertheless, he was, he was cautious there. He was cautious on civil rights uh, to, 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 um, to look ahead a bit. The big thing, I think, is um, that he saw women as objects. Uh, his father had, you know, done the same. His father had said to Joe Jr. and to Jack, in so many words, I expect you to um, be a skirt chaser. I expect you to um, um, get as many women as you can. That's the name of the game. Look at how I'm doing. He would on occasion bring a mistress home for dinner when the boys were growing up, which I think must have confused them uh, no end. Um, But I can't I can't say that it's the father's fault, because if I'm going to argue in the book that JFK is his own man with with respect to politics and with respect to uh, philosophy, worldview, um, then I've also got to, I must also argue that he should be able to be his own man in this area. Um, And so that treatment of of women, um, and he's very successful with them, um, and I should say, at least in this first volume, there's nothing predatory about JFK's pursuit that I can see. Later, I think that will become more problematic in Volume 2 when he's in the White House, uh, and that incredible power differential must matter. But, you know, he he cheats on Jackie before their wedding, and he cheats on her afterwards, and that's, um, that's something to reckon with, uh, especially in a Me Too age, but I think even apart from that. To a different type of aristocracy now, the British hereditary aristocracy. I had a very memorable chat this year to Lady Anne Glen Connor. She was Princess Margaret's lady-in-waiting, as you'll hear, among lots of other wonderful things about her. She recently wrote a refreshingly candid autobiography about life as an aristocrat and life within the orbit of the royal family. It's absolutely brilliant, and our conversation was hysterical. Now, we are looking at each other on Zoom, and you are sitting in the most extraordinary room. Where are you in the world at the moment? I'm sitting in the saloon at Holcomb. To my left is the Marble Hall. Uh, Have you ever been to Holcomb? I have. I've been around as a tourist. Well, I'm sitting in this wonderful room. Tom Lester, my cousin, said, you know, you must do it in the saloon, surrounded by really wonderful pictures, paintings, and I'm looking out. It's the hottest day of the year. I'm looking out onto the fountain, which is playing, and right up the park. It's the most lovely position I'm talking to you in. Is it the Earls of Leicester have lived there for generations? Yes, absolutely. My father was the fifth Earl of Leicester, so I became Lady Anne Cook. It's spelled Coke, but it's pronounced Cook. 
And my ancestor, who founded the family, really, was a chief justice in Queen Elizabeth the first day, and he prosecuted Guy Fawkes. And also, well, I was going to invent it, perhaps isn't the right word, common law. And when I go to America, they are thrilled, because the law in America is still common law that was created by him. And our crest is an ostrich with a horseshoe in its mouth because he always said that the cooks can digest anything. <laughs> we live very near Sandringham, so, you know, the royal family have always come over here. And that's when I first met Princess Margaret, when I was three, and she was, I think, four. My family have always been part of the royal family. My father was an equerry to the Duke of York before he became king. My mother was a lady of the bedchamber at the coronation with, to the Queen. And of course, I was a maid of honour. My uncle, Jack Cook, was lord-in-waiting to Queen Mary, you know, and so on and so on. So we've always been part like that, of the, worked for the royal family. Is that something that you feel has changed in your lifetime? I mean, if you look around now at your wider family, there's not an immediate assumption that great-nephews and nieces and grandchildren are all going to sort of knock about with royalty in each other. I mean, presumably that has changed, has it? It's changed completely, yes. And nowadays they marry who they like, really, you know. Because when I came out just after the war, we met, I mean, we had coming... I had a wonderful coming-out dance here where my father had a sort of special list of all suitable young men that were asked. And then we had lots of weekend parties... Where again we met people, friends, children or friends asked us and then we moved up to Scotland to the Highland Balls where then we met all the people who lived in Scotland but I mean you know one was either Blenheim or Boughton or you know all these big houses used to have weekend parties and that's how we got to know each other. When you look back on that in one way it was probably very socially isolating and you had to behave in a certain way but when you look at your grandchildren or other people's grandchildren from that circle do you miss that sort of social world and that sort of sense of being part of an elite or do you rather like the freedom that your descendants now have well no i don't agree at all with when you say freedom now it isn't because they shack up with one boyfriend when i was young we went out with a different man or boy or every night when you read my book my nightmare honeymoon. I mean, I was completely naive about sex, for instance. I mean, because we didn't do it, there was no contraceptive, you know. Uh, I was terrified of getting pregnant. I mean, we just didn't do it. And now, I mean, they have so little chance. I mean, one of my grandsons, who lives in Scotland, met his girlfriend at university. He's still with her. He's never actually had a chance to, you know, meet other girls. And I think that's very sad. I'm so glad that I live when I did. We have so much more fun, really. You know, playing the field. <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's a tough hit on her future granddaughter-in-law. Um, hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Anyway, let's get back to her totally normal honeymoon. And then on your honeymoon was a bit of a shock. Appalling shock. <laughs> Why, Colin thought? I mean, I was, I suppose, very naive. Because in those days, I mean, all the young men and fathers used to take that. So there's a sort of upmarket brothel run by Mrs. Featherstone Horde. Do you know about her? No, I have to well, say... I mean, I you probably would have gone there too. I mean, if, <laughs> yeah, that's what young men did, you know. So Colin, I don't think he'd ever made love to a virgin. I think that was a trouble. And so, for some unknown reason, when I thought I was being taken off to the Ritz, you know, put on my best dress, he took me to this 
absolutely appalling seedy hotel where we went into this room. I mean, luckily, we sat in two wing-back chairs because I sat with my eyes closed. There's an appalling sight in front of me, these awful pasted bodies squelching into each other in front of us. And I thought, this is simply nightmarish. And the honeymoon after that wasn't all that easy, but it did improve. And the thing about Colin was that one was never bored. He had a very quick, he was very clever, amazingly well-read. He always had slightly mad ideas, some of them, but he always had ideas. In fact, he was a very exciting person to live with, too exciting sometimes. What does lady-in-waiting mean? What do you do for lady-in-waiting of Princess Margaret? Well, she chairs on the whole friends because a lot of the time you're alone with her. And the thing is, when you first join, you're asked if you've got any charities you're really interested in. You, you see all her charities and you pick ones that you feel you like to work with. And therefore, then once in charge of those charities, they write to one. There is an office too and you go into the office. And then you write all the thank you letters. Say, after Australia, I went round Australia with her. I mean, I wrote a lot of the thank you letters. But the great moment is you're with the person, I'm with Princess Margaret the whole time. And in the evening, you know, when we used to go upstairs, we used to talk over the day, we'd laugh. She had a wonderful sense of humour, Princess Margaret. And she sometimes, when I was with her, in front of other people, she'd make me laugh, you know. I tried not to. And I'd say afterwards, Mammy, please don't make me laugh. You know, I couldn't keep a straight face. And I had her to stay. I mean, I, I lived with her for a whole year at Kensington Palace because I was doing up a flat, Colin being very flaky. He always sold our houses without telling me. And then he'd say, oh, Anne, I've just sold the house today we've got to get out in a fortnight you know i got used to that but anyway i then in the end bought a flat for myself and princess margaret said you do come and i said well it'll be about three weeks turned out it was a year i really enjoyed being with her and she had a very difficult husband and at the end of it, we both said, well, really, we got on so well. By that time, she was divorced. So much easier to be with each other than have these very difficult husbands. I want to come on to Mystique in a second, but just quickly with Princess Margaret. Her reputation is of a sort of socialite and drinker, and what would you have to say about that? Was she a sort of hard-working yeah. member of the royal family? I hope that's why I wrote my book, actually, because I was so fed up of people writing rubbish about her. They didn't know her. So I wanted, from my point of view... I put that over quite well in my book because judging by hundreds of letters I've had with, from people saying I'm so glad you have shown a different side to Princess Margaret I mean with me you had to, I was sort of a rude way putting it, handle her properly you know, I mean to me she was very royal, I mean she was brought up, her father was king emperor half the world was pink when she was brought up, there was only four of them and you know she was very royal and I didn't mind those sort of royal moments which she had occasionally. But the great thing was to ask her what she wanted to do. As long as she knew what she was going to do, people didn't spring surprises on her. She didn't like that. And ask her what she wanted to eat. I mean, to me, it seemed quite simple. If you're going to have somebody like that, you want to please them. You want to say, what do you want to do? And quite often she went to stay with people and they'd arranged the mayor and the chief of police and the bishop to come to lunch on Sunday you know she said you know weekends are meant to be my time off I found perhaps because I knew her and I really loved her I didn't find her difficult I could what I call steer her sometimes you know 
like I did when we were in Australia, and she refused to go on to Bondi Beach. Ooh, she said, Anne, I can't possibly have sand in my shoes. And they always come to me, that's part of being a lady-in-waiting. They always ring one up, saying, what's she going to wear, what colour, because we want the flowers we're going to give her to match. Anyway, in this instance, they rang me up and said, can you do anything? You know, it's vital in Australia to go on to Bondi Beach. So I said, well, leave it to me. And I managed to get a pair of her flat shoes. And just as we got there, I said, look, ma'am, would you think again? Because going on to Bondi Beach is all like kissing the blondie stone, you know. All right, man, look at my shoes. And so I took the flat one. I said, well, actually, I got a flat pair. And she looked at me and she just said, OK, Anne, you win this time. And actually, she got her own back later. She was asked to hold a koala bear. And she said, no, I don't think I will, but my lady-in-waiting would love to hold it. And this beastly koala bear, wee-wee, peed all the way down my dress. <laughs> and I said to her, I said, well, you got your own back on me, didn't you, ma'am? You know, we had a very nice relationship. Fun. It was fun. Something that's so extraordinary to me about inherited wealth is it can cause such extraordinary chaos within families. And your husband left all his money to somebody else. And it's a system like yours, which involves these passing these houses down and properties and estates and things, that must have been hugely problematic. He had already given a Glen, which is a family home, to his son, Henry. So he was living there. Colin, in the end, lived in St Lucia. He was a resident. But, of course, what was really difficult for me and the children because in the West Indies the will is read the night of the funeral and we had this amazing Caribbean funeral I've written about it in my book he changed his will I suppose five months before he died leaving everything to Kent who was his valet's servant really and that what was a final sort of nail in the coffin slightly for me you know, I've been married to him 54 years and there's nothing you can do in St Lucia. The law is quite different. So I went, I thought, well, I can surely, you know, get something. And they said, no, women don't count for anything. So, you know, anyway, I've written a bestseller now. Grand old age of nearly 88, <laughs> making some money for the first time. <laughs> well done to Lady Glen Connor. We've got another aristocratic uh, author on the podcast now, Charles Spencer. He is Princess Diana's brother, uh, and he wrote a great book this year on Henry I and the catastrophe of the shipwreck of the White Ship that occurred 900 years ago uh, this autumn. A terrible event with important repercussions. And I was really looking forward to this chat with him after I read the book because I was just stunned by the endemic levels of violence in 12th century Europe. Uh, and on one instant in particular... I don't know how they survived half of them, and of course half of them didn't. Um, I, I think one of the problems they had was the the role of Christianity in all of this. So a lot of the, particularly in England, there was a sort of fight between doing right by the church and doing right as a king. I think that the, the only way to, to survive in these times was to have very rigid rules, which you stuck to. And the most appalling episode in my book, in the whole tale of Henry, Henry I, is the way he treated the basic laws of hostage-taking. He brokered uh, a peace between one of his illegitimate daughters and her husband and some neighbours by making them swap each other's children as hostages. And Henry's daughter lost patience with the boy hostage she was holding and had him blinded. And the father of the boy went, as understandably, outraged to Henry and demanded his rights. 
And so Henry agreed that his two, his two granddaughters, his daughter's daughters, would be blinded as well and have their noses cut off um, as the, the sort of wrongful part of a, a hostage situation that had gone terribly awry. And I'm afraid that's the one bit where I just can't get my head around this time. You know, it isn't there some way? I mean, here we are. I mean, there's anything, you do anything to observe that the rules have been broken, but to preserve your granddaughters. It's just an astonishing... But it, to me, it says, these were the rules, and Henry I stuck by them. Well, his daughter, his daughter took matters into her own hands. Uh, tell everyone what she did. Well, yes, she pretended she wanted an audience with her father and then whipped out a crossbow and tried to shoot Henry I. Um, but she missed him. And then she was besieged by her father and then jumped into the moat of the castle in Ivry, where she was. And uh, the, 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 the observers were most shocked that this, this woman's actually fleeing for her life. And I don't think that dignity was the first thing in her mind. Um, but she showed her legs when her dress was sort of whipped up from her as she, as she descended very fast into the moat. Uh, people were appalled that they could see the, the, the lady's legs. Different standards. Next up, I talked to the one and only Paul Lay, editor of History Today. Not, not only a great editor, though, but a historian in his own right. His award-nominated book about the interregnum in England, in, in the Isles, was, was fantastic. And it was great to get him on the pod. OK, so we've got Cromwell is now the overlord of the British Isles. The Isles, Britain and Ireland. Goodness knows, it's difficult to call them anything these days. And he is, what's he do? 651. So what's so the army still in charge? What is, what is his plan to match uh, his military pr- uh, successes with a kind of lasting constitutional uh, arrangement? Well, uh, the phrase that Cromwell uses again and again is healing and settling. Um, and... What we have to think about this is when he talks about healing and settling, the constitutional reforms, or the constitutional projects, and the religious project of the moral reformation of England are entwined. They can't, you, you simply cannot separate those two things. They are combined. This presents itself as most extreme or most obviously religious, with the nominated assembly, which is the first real parliament that um, Cromwell has. He's not called it. He's not protector at this point. There's a nominated assembly of which he's the primus inter pares. And this is the idea not of John Lambert, who's the second in command at this point, but a person called Thomas Harrison, who is a member of a group called the Fifth monarchists. And they believe uh, that there are going to be five monarchies on earth before the millennium appears, before God returns to earth. Those being Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. Rome being both classical Rome and the papacy. And there will be a fifth monarchy. And this, if all goes well, will be in England. And England. So you can see this deeply religious, providential thread running throughout this. And so Harrison becomes the kind of ideological figurehead of this assembly of, and it's called nominated, because the members of this assembly, the MPs, will be nominated by various churches, or at least that's the plan. In the end, they're not. They're they're appointed in a, a much more haphazard and one would say more corrupt way than that. Um, 
but it's modelled on the Jewish Sanhedrin, quite quite explicitly modelled on on the uh, Sanhedrin. The fifth monarchists are often represented as dominating this. It's, it's actually not true. It's actually not a bad parliament. It's, it's lampooned in some way because it's known as the bare bones parliament after one of its more um, obscure uh, members who's a city leather trader, I think, called um, Praise God Bare Bones or Praise God Barbon, uh, which is a very Puritan name. If, uh, I forget the full extent of his actual real name, but it's in the book and that's something to ponder and wonder at. Um, but it's actually a reasonably effective one. But there is obstruction from the more mainstream MPs, the Presbyterian MPs, and it ends, as almost all of Cromwell's parliaments do, by the eviction of MPs by military force. And Cromwell will turn up and say, oh, I didn't realise this was going on and present himself as good. There's a wonderful phrase by Blair Worden, who's the great historian of this period, um, when he says that Cromwell is practised at not knowing. He always seems to be not quite there or just gone when a dramatic event happens. And yet one can't help but wonder, uh, with great reason, just what hand he's playing. And there's definitely this kind of elusive figure of Cromwell, this political figure. What goes on in the background is always there. One of the great sources, the great source for Cromwell that we haven't got, will never have, are his dialogues with God. And those are the ones that I think there's this constant practice of Cromwell's to go into prayer, to go into retreat and have this one-to-one dialogue with God. It's actually very, very well done in a play by Howard Brenton called 55 Days, uh, which is set during the 55 days before Charles' first execution. And you have these imagined conversations between Cromwell, but he's always searching for the answer to what would God want me to do. And you say we don't have that source. Did he write down transcripts which are now lost, or did we just not have it because it wasn't recorded? Well, no, it was just a private... Right, a private conversation just, with God. It's just yeah, in the head. Right, it's a shame. Yeah. OK, so Barebones Parliament's gone... Uh, what's next? Well, as Thomas Harrison recedes into the background again, John Lambert comes to the fore, but not as a military figure this time, although, of course, the army's always there in the background, but as a rather original um, political thinker. And he composes uh, the first written constitution in the world, which is called the Instrument of Government which essentially tries to settle uh, the Republic on firm or firmer foundations. So essentially it replaces the old trinity of King, uh, Commons and Parliament with a sort of kingly figure, or a sovereign, shall we call it, a council and a parliament. And that's the new settlement. Now, who is going to be the king-like figure? The original offer is that it should be Cromwell, that there should be a kind of house of Cromwell. But Cromwell resists this and instead is offered the title of Lord Protector, which obviously has some uh, semblance in uh, English history. There is a tradition of it, but it's it's essentially as a guardian of a a future monarch, as you know. Um, But he takes on this title of Lord Protector, uh, which is controversial. Um, And he takes on a mantle 
of royalty. You know, there's no great ostentation at this point. You know, he goes to uh, the opening of Parliament in Puritan black, uh, although actually, ironically, black is actually quite expensive. To do. The, the, the Puritan wear is actually quite expensive, relatively, because black's a difficult colour to achieve at that time. Um, but he takes a kind of mantle of monarchanism, which really upsets his loyal Republican figures, people like Henry Vane, Thomas Esselrig, and of course Milton, who responds and asks questions about, you know, this man who was the greatest among us. You know, we keeping an eye on you and we watching how this unravels. Um, but by this point, Cromwell's in charge. His council, which is often made up of his family members, people like Desborough, uh, people like Lambert, uh, his, his, his sons around, particularly Henry, not Richard, but Henry, uh, Fleetwood. There's this, they're interrelated, they're married together. You have this very, very small elite, uh, Puritan elite that's gathered around the sources of power in Whitehall and Parliament. And um, it's beginning to resemble a kind of Puritan aristocracy is pushing it but there's no doubt that these are now important intertwined interlocked figures and there's a kind of regime about it but it's on this foundation of the instrument of government so um speaking of aristocracy how's how's, how's uh, the isles how are they being governed in practice i mean are traditional some manorial practices still going on but different people or is there now is there now government state you know state paid, paid for troops in every town and village i mean it's it's early modern britain um, the, the military presence... I mean, this, this is a place that's recovering from civil war, remember. Um, it's had famine, it's had all kinds of stuff, but it's getting towards stability. And I suppose there's, with most people, there's a kind of Hobbesian kind of belief in the strong arm of government. And this is a strong government... Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
Now, regular listeners will know that I like to get veterans, activists and politicians on here, as well as historians. And few of those veterans have been better than Christian Lamb. She was a naval officer during the Second World War. It was great fun. We had a lovely time. Went to the theatre a great deal, too. During the Blitz, when when they had a... uh, uh, You could hear the the whistle of the bombs coming nearer and nearer. And the whole audience would blinch like that and and sort of lean over... Then it would pass me. All right, here now. <laughs> Amazing. And you must have had lots of boyfriends. And it must have been great going to parties and things. I didn't have very many boyfriends somehow in London. There were a few parties, but they tried to make us go back at four o'clock before it was dark, because the, when the Blitz began, which was not until the, the late summer, really. You were at London during the Blitz? Yes. And then where did you go after that? Well, then I, I had decided I didn't want to be a, a, a coder, which I had originally volunteered for, because I thought it sounded mysterious and interesting, but it was terribly boring. I discovered plotting was much more fun, so I, I volunteered for that. And I, after I got my commission, I was promoted to an officer, having been an ordinary wren. Then I was a leading wren as well before that. And I was sent down to do this amazing job at Coalhouse Fort, um, which was... Degaussing. It's about measuring the ships for their magnetic emission. And that was done by this range, which and I had to run the office. I was a leading ran age 20. It was really quite exciting. But after I was there for about a year, and then I went down to Plymouth, and there I was plotting officer at Mount Wise, which was wonderful. So you did the degaussing. Now tell me what plotting involves. Well, plotting involved... It was, we had a huge, big um, operations room in Plymouth, Mount Wise, and um, it was divided into two. The RAF had one lot, Coastal Command had one side, and there they had four, four WAFs running their plot, which was a big flat table with a sort of wax top on it, and it was very exciting. It had all the convoys, all the, the, the huge ships, the liners, and things like that, all going at about 26 knots, and convoys going at about three knots, you know. Everything had to be kept up to date, which was very exciting. There were four girls on each side of the, of, of the table with telephones, and they were in, in, co- in um, communication with the radar stations around the coast. And they took us to find, to see a radar station, so we had some idea of what was going on, which made it much more interesting. So you were in Plymouth, plotting. Yes, and, and Plymouth must have been extraordinary. Plymouth was very badly bombed, so you must have been bombed there as well. No, it was bombed before I got there, right. I'm glad to say. So when we got there, it was more or less flattened. But we made a lot of friends with submariners there. There we did have a lot of boyfriends and parties and things, which was great fun. Parties in their ships were rather fun because the officer's mess was so small. And I remember one time, Eve and I, she was a wren with me, and we used to wear our evening dresses for weekend parties and things. We only had two each, so we used to exchange them. And one time the officer said to us, why don't you wear your, our dinner jackets in exchange? We were so tired of your evening dresses. <laughs> I can't remember whether we did or not. So that must have been great fun. It was great fun, yeah. And then you got posted up north. Well, then the whole of Mount Wise, the whole of the Western Approaches headquarters was moved up to Liverpool. And I moved on from various other places before I ended up in Belfast, which was another very interesting plot, because all the convoys would gather together and get mixed up and ready to sail from just north of Belfast in a place called Rock there, I think, which was the sort of place they all gathered. And then they set off. And what was Belfast like during the war? 
Well, Belfast was very good. There was no rushing, so we had masses of food there. Nevertheless, we went down to visit Dublin from time to time and by train, and they always searched everything you bought when you're on your way back. It was very difficult. And what about your trip in the aeroplane? We had to do a, a, a course in Bath. I had no idea what the course involved, but I do remember when I'm coming back, I missed my train, and I never, ever did such a thing. I was always terribly punctual, always early. So I was horrified of this, and I was actually talking to a, a, a Polish man who I'd been at a party with the night before, and he said, shall I give you a lift back in the old crate? I said, what old crate? Oh, he said, my, my, my aeroplane. So I said, oh, good heavens, and I so thrilled to answer yes, absolutely, passionately. Can you imagine a Miles Magister, an aeroplane, which was open to the winds, you know. I mean, I'd never flown in anything before anyway. A thrilling moment, absolutely wonderful. So we, we, we dive-bombed lots of cows and things, which he thought would frighten me, but I loved that. And I was really hoping he might loop the loop, but perhaps it's just as well he didn't as I might have fallen out. So you were plotting, you were moving the little marks yes. on this big map, and it was your husband's ship that you were plotting. Yes. And we were receiving signals all the time. It wasn't like if we had television, we'd be able to see the battle. But otherwise, we'd be just waiting for signals all the time to hear what was going on. And the news from each... We just, it was just luck being able to pick up the news from various places. But yes, I, I was plotting the battle. And my friends all tried to make me go home, but I couldn't. I had to stay there. And then when they'd rammed it and so on, they could only go off at, I think they had the speed of 12 knots, which they could just about do to get to the other side um, and have a new bow fitted. Lots of women that you served with wouldn't have been as lucky. I mean, they, you must have had friends that lost husbands and boyfriends at sea. And, or I had one Ren friend who was bombed and killed. She was my great friend. It was horrid. It was very horrid. She was bombed very near Harrods, imagine, killed just there. And so you always felt that you were, you were up at the sharp end of the war. It, didn't, it never felt the war was distant and, and something apart from it. No, and what's more, I did a job which I enjoyed and which was useful. I felt it was useful doing the degaussing. It saved people's lives from being blown up by magnetic mines. And um, plotting was interesting because if you saw um, a radar blip which might have been a submarine or a motorboat from Germany you know, on the southwest coast. You know, then you would send a motorboat out to, to um, investigate. So it, was, it always felt useful. And then speaking of useful, you, so you helped win the Battle of the Atlantic, then you helped victory at D-Day as well. <laughs> well, that was very exciting because I was working on the actual maps of the, the landings. There were five landings, as you probably know, uh, all those places on this the Normandy coast and of course they had to be deadly secret because we were trying to persuade the Germans that we were going to use the Pas de Calais and not the Normandy coast and so everything had to be very very secret so I had my own little office in the basement and nobody else was in it but me and the whole of the walls were covered in those huge ordnance survey maps of France and I had to draw a map of every compass bearing like that of every from each landing place to see what people would be able to see like a, a, a motorway or a, a train service or a chateau or something like that on every all over France so it was quite an interesting job 
and I hoped it was, I don't know whether they ever used my maps, but there, there they were. So these are maps that when the, when the men landed on the beaches, they could sort of orientate them? When the ship arrived in the, air, in the, in the place where it was the actual landing place, they would look at my maps in theory and be able to identify where they were. That was the plan. Was that rather a lonely job or was it a good team? It was quite interesting because I was in this place which was opposite the horse guards in Whitehall and Churchill was working in the top of this enormous building and we could sometimes see him going up and down stairs which was very exciting. But otherwise it was just the most amazing place where they had these extraordinary um, inventions for everything. They invented these wonderful harbours which they you know, made and took over and there were hundreds and hundreds of pieces of them. Each piece had to be made in probably a different harbour and, and sunk below the wall so it couldn't be seen from the air and then eventually all had to be um, put together. Extraordinary behaviour. Extraordinary. Do you feel that the women who worked in those buildings and worked everywhere, do you think the women have been sort of a bit overlooked when we talk about the war, commemorate the war? difficult to tell because an awful lot of them did the most boring jobs like looking after the rennery and cooking and boiling water that sort of thing you know but um i i think i mean when you think of the job that they did with the perishers course which was the biggest training the most sophisticated training for captains of submarines it was called the perishers course and the man who ran it was a distinguished um submariner captain DSO, DSC, everything you think of. He ran it, and he ran it with half a dozen sailors normally to, um, to help him with the course and all the equipment and so on. And he decided one day he could perhaps replace them with wrens. And I found one of the first wrens who'd done it with him was a girl who lived in Cornwall, and I met her and got her to write in the description of, of how she'd done it all. So they put it in my book. So, so lots of wrens and wafts did all sorts of interesting jobs. Exactly. Amazing jobs and cleaning torpedoes. and I mean, they did, did all sorts of jobs like that and um, servicing machinery. You know, they were all trained to do it and they loved being given, given these interesting jobs to do. A real treat way back at the start of the year was chatting to Oscar-winning director Sam Mendes. I asked him how deliberately he'd chosen to set his brilliant film 1917 in that retreat to the Hindenburg line in early 1917 because history geeks like me kind of immediately realised it it gave him that rare thing on the Western Front. It gave him a little bit of mobility in which troops could throw off, albeit briefly, the, the kind of stalemate of the trenches. He could set a story at a time when mobility had very briefly been restored to the um, otherwise very static battles of the Western Front. I was looking and looking for a way to have a journey that yeah. wasn't... 300 yards long you know yeah. uh, so I had to t- and, and, and unless I found that I, I couldn't have made that I wouldn't have written the script I wouldn't have made the story it was that r- that realisation that there was that moment that perfect moment which is why you know the movie st- is played over one day and it's very specific which day it is and, and indeed that was the day that, that there was this confusion they were beginning to mobilise to move up to the new German line but some sections of the army had no idea what was going on, and that's what we've—that's the situation we come into. You know, you have this combination, as you know, in the First World War, the first you know war that begins with horses and and infantry and ends with tanks and machine guns and weapons of mass destruction, the beginning of modern warfare. But at the same time, no communication. No, there isn't a commensurate 
degree of sophistication in communication. There is no way of telling someone. So, you know, even people 30 yards away from orders being delivered can't hear and die. And this happens over and over and over again, the sort of level of the awful perfect storm of the sudden development of industrial warfare and the lack of industrial level of communication is, is, is a hell, really. And um, so, so you're trying to find that kind of fulcrum uh, point where suddenly, through a keyhole, the keyhole of one man's experience, you're able to suddenly see the vast panorama of death and destruction. It, you know, the whole movie is based on the idea that through the micro you can understand the macro. You know, through just two hours of real time and one man's or two men's experience, you can see and begin to understand the sheer scale of the war. Um, it struck me even on No Man's Land that the scale is not expressed going from the British line to the German line because that's almost visible. You know, in many cases it was visible um, 200 yards away. The scale is best expressed looking down the lines because that goes on for miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles. And sometimes you, you have to find different ways of looking at things in order to find a way to articulate the vastness of, of the chaos that was, that was the Great War. Um, because we're so stuck in cliches, so stuck in, in, in repeating images. You know, over the top, die, over the top, die, back in the trench, over the top, die. I mean, you know, it, it, it's almost impossible to break out of that. And I was looking for a way to try to break out of that. But at the same time, we do have that. <laughs> you know, there, there, is, yeah. there are trenches, there is no man's land, there are people who go over the top at the end of the movie. So it, 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 but it's trying to unlock other areas of, of history. Well, the, what, the, the, the technique that is so revolutionary and deserves every award in the book is, is obviously shooting it as if it's on one steady shot the whole way through. And what's so brilliant about that is it lends itself, to the first of all, like no, nothing else. So you see the back, the, the rear areas, they're all asleep in the grass and flowers and pop, you know, not, not poppies, but flowers yeah. having a nice time. And then they kind of get their stuff together and they go through the communication trench and, the back, and then they end up the front line, then they go over the front line and it's all a one And you see thousands of people and you do get that sense of geographical scale. Mm. But um, and I'll ask about the technical stuff in a minute, but I have to ask every director that comes on the History Podcast about how annoying are historians when you wanted to do something, did they go, well, it didn't really go like that. And how do you ever rule them? Is, does the filmmaking come first? Was history, how important was history to you? Oh, very important. I mean, we had two historical advisors, Andy Robertshaw and uh, Peter Barton, both of whom were brilliant. Um, Legends. Yeah, and both different, uh, you know, areas of... Spe- I mean, they both obviously know pretty much everything about the First World War, but they also had specific areas that I would sort of set them on, like attack dogs, you know. Andy would talk to the men, all the background about how what was in their packs and their kit bags and, the, you know, and, and how they used their weapons. We had another military advisor called Paul Biddis, who himself had been in the military but also knows about the First World War, who was training them and talking to them about uh, all sorts of psychological uh, elements to uh, what, they, what they were expected to do and, and what they would have been through just to get to the front line. Peter Barton was the one who pointed out, and he, I said, look, you, you, I want you to pick holes in this every way you possibly can. Um, and it was brilliant. And he made a huge impact on it because, you know, he, even if it's just, if it's just um, throwing a spotlight on cliches, you know, the men waiting to go over the top knowing they're about to die, he says, nonsense. They, most men went over the top thinking they were going to victory. You, you know, but that's a huge thing when you're talking to 500 background live, you know, just reminding them of that. Yes, they're adrenalized. Yes, they're frightened. But they're not knowing they're going to die. This is a myth. And that's something we impose upon it with the kind of nostalgia of hindsight and our knowledge of the war. and So 
so you know th- there are those aspects and then you know just ge- geography where is a coast where is the land you know how far would, would they how much of a trench would they have been able to dig in 24 hours you know even on mass all of these things um and uh, and and a lot of those things went into the script went into the way that we approached it uh we adjusted all sorts of details because of historical so i in a way you know it was crucial but then of course there are things that i said well, you know what i'm going to i'm going to ignore that because you know film necessarily is a compression and this is not naturalism it's kind of poetic naturalism you know there are uh, and, th- and there's a sense and i don't want to give it away but even though it takes place in 2 hours of real time that time is at, at, at one point irrelevant. You know, Central Karen doesn't know where he is anymore, doesn't know what time it is, even if he's been asleep or knocked out for two, three days, you know. Um, and he physically doesn't know where he is in the landscape. So you don't want to be, you don't want to, liter- to be over-literal about distances and over-literal about time because the film operates in a, a dreamlike way at times as well, which is... Uh, you know, which is film, and and it's not. That's, otherwise, I'd have made a documentary or, or written an essay. You know, it, it strikes me that you so you had a you had a, a story, a narrative idea about this movie, and, and you wanted to get across the scale. But it feels like technically, you obviously what, the cinematography you wanted to absolutely kick on, and, and it, for me, it felt as big a shift as the first time I ever saw Saving Private Ryan when that when that uh, when that tr- ramp goes down, and suddenly you see sort of bullets for the first time in film. You know, yeah. sort of whizzing around, and and. Talk to me a little bit about some of the techniques that you use and, and whether you must have pioneered. <coughs> did, did this film need it? Did the film, did your story, your script need you to make all these innovations uh, to, 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 to realise it? Yeah, the two things happen at the same time. You're searching for a perfect marriage of form and content. You know, you, you, you want the form to match the content. And if you're telling a story in two hours of real time and your goal is to lock the audience together with the characters for those two hours, make them experience every second passing with the characters, take every step with them, then it seemed like a natural step to not edit, to not cut, to not give an audience any sense that there was anything except this single dance between the camera, the the uh, actors, and the landscape, which is the choreography that we're engaged in the whole time. But if you haven't seen it, I don't want... It, it, it's difficult to imagine it, because... You know, I think everyone's worst version of that is the cameras sort of trotting along behind two people and seeing what they're seeing basically for two hours, and or or seeing their faces as they react to it. But the the truth is, it's a constantly shifting uh, movement from the subjective camera to the objective camera, from the intimacy of understanding their emotional reaction to what they're seeing, and also showing the landscape, the journey, the scale of the journey, understanding distances. And then there are these other characters. As I said earlier, it's, it's nature. You know, this is a land that, yes, it's been raised to the ground largely by the Germans, but it's French farmhouses and towns and canals and rivers and orchards and streams and, and woods and, and the spring re-emerging. And so there's this other life that comes back into the film which you also want to kind of pay homage to. So it's though that dance is an instinctive thing that you and the you know I, mean, I had one of the greatest cinematographers of all time shooting this film Roger Deakins and I worked with him <clears throat> three times before and this was our fourth time and most of prep for us was just talking 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 trying it out talking again storyboarding it trying it out talking you know and then an endless amount of rehearsals because if you think about it well you have to if you write a scene that says they go from a quarry to a woods down a hill through an orchard to a farmhouse that's all very well but when you can't cut 
the distances have to be exactly the length of the scene and the scene has to be exactly the length of the set. And only when you've measured it can you then start building the orchard, building the farmhouse, digging the trenches. You know, so you have to get out there on open fields before you do anything, holding a script, just marching up and down with a bunch of people sticking flags in the ground, saying, well, well this is where the trench starts, this is where the comms trench enters, this is the left turn, this is, when it, this is the dugout, this is where they have the little fight. This is... And there were all these... So there were white posts marking the trenches and then there were orange posts marking events within the trenches... And the same for No Man's Land, German Dugout, etc. Uh, uh, right the way through the film. So, you know, uh, if you ask George Mackay now, who played Schofield, he could walk the journey of the movie for you still, step for step, because it's so in his muscle memory. We literally did it for months, because there was no way of moving if we, hadn't, if we didn't know that it was... You know, because if you build an orchard that's two times longer than you need, you've got a long scene with no dialogue. You know, you, you, they just run out of things to talk about. Or, if it's too short, they're standing still for a section of the scene because they're not, they, they can't move anywhere. So it has to be exactly the right length. And that was a really a, a challenge. And then rehearsals, those actors. I mean, as someone on, on telly, the, the stress of getting something wrong at the end of the scene, that means going, yeah, yeah. I mean, it must have been awful. I mean, can you reveal how many takes you had to do in certain, or certain things? Or? Oh, we had to do you know, multiple takes, 30, 40, 50 takes sometimes. But, you know, these are eight-minute scenes, so that's a lot of you know, shoe leather and tra- travelling distances all the time. But the truth is that all the rehearsals, in order to build the set and plan the, the camera rigs, meant they were very, very familiar with it. And, and in a kind of way, that meant that they were living it by the time we came to shoot it, rather than acting it. And they, I kept saying, just ignore, don't think about where the camera is. Very occasionally I'll say, just in that moment, look over your right shoulder, you know. Um, and they would, you know, by that time they were so comfortable with it that it was easy. And then, you know, what you want, though, is this very odd combination of things. You want incredible precision in the camera work, but you don't want incredible precision in the physical movement of the actors. You want them to not be thinking about how they're moving, not be thinking about how they're being with each other, just simply being. So you want spontaneity in front of the camera and you want precision behind the camera. So that balance was always the most difficult thing because sometimes you know, it takes 10 takes to get the precision in camera, by which time they've done it 10 times and they've sort of lost their spontaneity. Often, the directors will tell you, the first two or three takes are the ones where you get the most electricity and sometimes you don't need any more than that. But here... That didn't happen very often, you know. There's no, there's only one scene which is a first take in the movie, you know, and um, but most of them were, you know, after sort of twenty. And so the job is then to keep the actors alive, you know, literally, and literally alive. But also, you know, if I, I kept saying, look, if mistakes happen, just keep going because some of them are just human. Just, you're just a human being. You're slipping in the mud. You're falling over. You know, at one key moment at the end, near the end. One of the characters is nearly delivering a message and he gets literally knocked off his feet. Oh, that was a mistake? That was a mistake. But, exactly. Because it, and I just said, if that happens to you, get up and keep running, you know. And he did. And it's in the movie. So those are happy accidents that you would hope for on normal movies, but you're able to kind of get that, those rough edges, really, which, which give a feeling of life rather than, rather than acting. One of the best books I read this year was Toby Green's A Fistful of Shells about the the pre-European encounter history of, of West Africa. And I told him that I was really struck by the hugely important trading and cultural links that West Africa had long enjoyed before European seafarers arrived in the 15th century. Yes, it was. And I think that is one of the, that's one of the important 
I suppose, rebalancings that the book tries to do, that, yes, this wasn't a region which somehow emerged into history in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries once the Europeans started trading down the West African coast and increasingly in in slaves. Uh, It was a region which was already connected to... Uh, parts of, uh, well, the Ottoman Empire, for example, uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, to places like uh, Iraq, to, uh, and also, interestingly, connected to places in Spain and and southern Italy, even before the 15th century as well. So, yes, it was a, it was a region which had uh, important trading and political connections in its own right before then. That's right. And I think that... And, that, and that's something which persisted throughout the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries as well. You actually find diplomats from, for example, the Kingdom of Dahomey uh, in Portugal or in Brazil in the 18th century. One of the bits you, uh, which I found fascinating was when I found this document which described the ambassadors of the Kingdom of Dahomey in Lisbon in the 1790s, the bill at the restaurant where they ate, they went to the opera house every night for a month and this kind of thing. And it, it's not the impression that if you like, school history syllabi have, have given us of West African history. That's one of the things that the book tries to, to look at. But we should, but it does have a unique geographical position with advantages and disadvantages in terms of trade and, and, and state building that come from that. Like, tell me, wh- why, why, uh, how does geography, how, how, does, how, does the, how do these empires and, and uh, polities grow, flourish and then decline in, in the space we now call West Africa? Well, that's a very important question because uh, the... The, f- the things which affect the rise and fall in the way of, of these empires and kingdoms relate to changing geographies, for example, and uh, the expanding of dry seasons, which happens in the in the, what we call the medieval period, but also from around 1630 onwards, that has a big impact on uh, pol- politics in the region. Also, elements of geography such as the savannah areas of West Africa, which are more open to being controlled by cavalries and, and so on, which allow for bigger states and, and regions nearer to the coast uh, because of the different geography there, have different types of political formations. So all those things are relevant, as also are the openings which trade offers or closes in, in that period as well. And those do... So West Africa, West African political systems arise on their own terms. But of course, like political systems all over the world, they're also related to other factors of, of trade and global connections. And the Sahara, uh, in terms of so sailing, it was quite hard to sail between what we now call Morocco and West Africa, was it? But so it was, we're talking about trans-Saharan trade. Yes, so to start with, you have this trans-Saharan trade, that's right. And um, uh, for example, in the, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of the history which was written about this, uh, particularly in Portuguese, actually talked about the conflict between the caravel and the caravan. Okay. So you had the caravan, which obviously is the Saharan trade. And yes, the, you know, there were very complex networks. There are maps from the 14th century, actually, which show these networks crisscrossing the Sahara through the oases and, and, and so forth. And then, yes, from the start of the 15th century, the Portuguese begin to... Uh, sail down the coast of Morocco. They didn't actually have the navigational equipment, so the, the quadrants and such like, to make it easy to sail out of sight of land. That was one of the reasons. Once you sailed south of a particular cape, which was known as Cape Bojador at that time, you had to sail out of land to return to Portugal. That was one of the reasons that people didn't do that, uh, because they were terrified of it. Uh, so it took quite, so it took quite a long time uh, for this, for the, for the, if you like, the competition to really take shape between the caravan and the caravel. Uh, one of the things which is difficult, I think, with writing history over such a long period of time is that we can compress time. We can think, oh, you know, it was inevitable that in the course of the 15th century this would take place. Well, actually, you know, at the time it wasn't inevitable at all. You know, for people looking at it 50 years in the future was a hell of a long time, as it is for us today. So I, I try to take account of that in, in the book too. Does racism 
bluntly, and the impact of the and the shadow cast by the slave trade, where we think it's what technologically very sophisticated white people turning up and sort of dragging, you know, natives out of the bushes with no, you know, why do, and then taking them against their their wishes to, to the new world. Has that has that racist thinking? allowed, um, discourage us from looking at the kind of sophistication of the kingdoms and, and polities that have gone before? Yes, clearly uh, African history has always been thought, uh, in Britain in particular, uh, for about 200 years through the lens of, of the history of slavery, since the abolition movement. In the abolition movement, you had, in the abolition era, you had set up uh, two obviously opposing camps. You had the, the pro-slavery movement, who portray, which portrayed Africa as a benighted continent and slavery was saving these people from, from that continent. Uh, and then you had the abolitionists who portrayed Africa also actually as a benighted continent, destroyed by the wars of the slave trade. Uh, which, uh, which, ha- and therefore you had to uh, st- abolish slavery in order to uh, ameliorate that. Of course, one of the ironies of, of, of that narrative is it set up a, an idea of African history as solely related to slavery, and it didn't allow any scope for any of the other elements of African history to, to come through, such as art, uh, literature, oral and written, uh, uh, archaeology, uh, sorry, um, architecture, uh, elements of technology, medicine, in fact, all of those things which you could write about and which there is evidence of which, wasn't, which weren't written about. Um, and, of course, the other irony is that these wars were very much an offshoot of the state-building process, just as they had been in Europe. Europe's uh, state-building process in that period of history was also marked by innumerable wars and conflicts, just as, it was, just as was the case in Africa, which is one of the parallels which the book tries to look at. And, and then in that, in that case as well, why is it just a quirk of navigational technology? I mean, this is the, one of the big questions of history is why on earth do these like Western Europeans who've played no particular role in human history so far go and expand like a virus across the entire world in the space of 100 years? Why was it that the African states, uh, technologically advanced, culturally sophisticated, why did, why did they... Uh, um, uh, why, why, why did it prove so unequal? That's, that's a very good question. It, it's a, that's one of the reasons why the book looks at over a long period of time, because I think it's over a long period of time that you can get some answers to that question. To, to begin with, why, why was there an interest in that trade in the first place? Um, we have to remember that the coast at that time, where, where the Portuguese arrived in the, from the sort of mid-15th century onwards, was, were, they, they were backwaters. They were provinces, sub-provinces of the central... Uh, Central, centralized hearts. So, for example, Senegal, which is where the Portuguese first arrived, the, the kingdoms around the coast there were provinces of the Empire of Mali, and so and Mali um, was a fate would have faced north and east into the Arab. It wasn't facing much more in right. those directions. That's right. And so, for, for, and so, but for the but, but for the but for the rulers, the viceroys of the of, of the provinces on the coast, it was it was to their advantage to trade with the Portuguese. They could begin to challenge and vie with the central power for supremacy, and that happened. For example, in Senegambia, it happened in the Kingdom of Congo as well with the province in Soyo. And there are various different examples of that. So there were reasons... So when we stop, when we start breaking down our idea of Africa, in quotes, to the different part, different constituent parts, you, that makes more sense as to why it was in some people's interests to, be, to, to begin trade. Uh, and then w- how did this trade mesh with a rise in inequality between African and European political actors? The book makes a case that one of the reasons for that is is looking at this as a trade, looking at the history of money and how the types of 
money which were used in West Africa, which were traded by Europeans, so a lot of the early trade is in currencies, is in copper, iron, cowries, which are used as, as, as currencies in West Africa, and the value of those decline over time, whereas what Africa exported, which was gold to begin with, a lot of gold, and then subsequently captive labour, which was used to accumulate value in, in the Americas, grew over time. So that's, that's the case that the book makes as to why that led to a rise in inequality. And so when you look at these kingdoms, like the Kingdom of Mali, Kingdom of Congo, what are the sources like? What, what, why do, again, why do, uh, how hard is it for a historian to, to push aside the, that curtain of that sort of, that, that, that bookend of the slave trade and, and actually see what was going on in, before it? Another very good question. It, it can be hard. Uh, it, it depends. The, the answer is different in different regions of West Africa. So Congo is a good case. So Congo, there's a huge amount of, uh, of written sources. The, the Congolese convert, uh, kings and ruling royal families converted to Christianity very early. A lot of them became literate in Portuguese very early and wrote impassioned letters in Portuguese. Okay. And some of, Tragic. Yeah. Yes, and some of them also later in, in, in Kikongo from quite an early time. So we have those sources. And, and, and some of those uh, sort of recounted oral histories of the foundation of the kingdom from an early time too, but at that time, in the, in the, in the late 1400s, in the 1500s. So we have... So Vietnam Congo is, is very well documented from that time. Uh, Mali, we have a lot of Arabic accounts in Arabic of Mali uh, dating from the 13th century, 14th century, and more manuscripts are being found. Uh, we discussed before, actually, Dan, you've been to Timbuktu, you saw some of those, and uh, there are more of those being found. Uh, and then there is a, a history in most of West Africa is an oral genre. It's retained orally. And sometimes, and I've had this experience myself, uh, it's possible to corroborate oral and written sources from an early time, from the 16th century even. But that, that's a slow process. So that was Toby Green, a great place to finish up. Thank you again, listeners, everyone that's put up with me and this podcast over an extraordinary year. I hope that all of you have some cause for optimism as we move into 2021. We'll be there, podcasting, every day. See you on the other side. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires.
Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.